This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Everything will always be all right. Certainly feels like everything is all right. If you just take a look at uh, shares of Amazon, stock is up 4.2% at its high today, up about 8%, but still gaining ground uh, following its uh, earnings release, which we broke down after the close yesterday. Let's bring in uh, Dina Bass, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Seattle. Brian Manning also with us, president and co-founder of Centric Digital. It's a company which really helps customers adapt and transform uh, in digital ways in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Dina, let me just start with you. Um, you know, Amazon, it's just firing on all cylinders, it feels like. Yeah, you know, there's been huge demand for their cloud services, Amazon Web Services. They reported yesterday, as did Microsoft, and um, we, we've sort of seen that continued migration of companies globally to these Internet-based cloud services. Um, and, you know, those businesses just don't seem like they're slowing down at all. We're sort of, at, you know, nearer to the beginning of the cycle than, than the end. And that business for Amazon is much more profitable than their retail business. So to the extent that it continues growing, that's very lucrative for them. Right, but they continue to shape and push everybody in the retail sector. Brian, come on in on the conversation, right? Because, it, you know, anybody who's selling something, I feel like the conversation inevitably ends up bringing in or ending up talking about Amazon and their role. Absolutely. Um, and as you noticed in the, the results, they are uh, raising the price of their Prime subscription, which is a main driver why people keep coming back to them. They can get products to their house almost next day. Or and that's money after. that goes right to the top line. Well, it, it, it certainly subsidizes the shipping costs and vast logistics they have. But, um, you know, this is really keeping their customers engaged and coming back to them over and over and looking to buy more and more products from them. So it's making it difficult for retailers that are selling, you know, averaged or commoditized types of products to compete with that. So, Dina, what does it mean, though, in terms of retail going forward? I mean, uh, they're just going to continue their push. It's a low margin business. You're right. It's not, you know, the area that's kind of sexier when it comes to Amazon's business and they're moving into other things. But um, they're going to keep their push, right? They're going to continue their push further and further into retail. Sure. You know, and we talk about it being lower margin, but, you know, Amazon does seems to do better on the cost than anybody else does. Hmm. So, you know, while we see uh, lots of retailers nationwide shutting stores, having having problems, you know, Amazon continues to grow. Um, so, I, you know, it's less of a challenge for them on the, the retail side, the margins, than for, for some of the people they're competing with. And we don't see any any slowdown, any sign of a slowdown from them on that. I'm going to talk more retail. Oh, go ahead, the Brian. The margin is low now. Uh, online penetration for, for total retail is still in the 16% range. There's a lot of room to grow here. So, you know, Bezos and the team may be spending a lot now to to just get mass adoption. And then over time, they're going to raise the prices. They've already started to show that with the Prime subscription. What amazes me too, Dina, though, is when you think about retail, there's still so much done brick and mortar. Uh, Even though we all are, you know, used to all these Amazon boxes coming in, there's still so much done in actual physical stores. 
Sure. You know, they, we've, it's interesting because, you know, we saw certainly on the book side they caused sort of the shutdown of many, many bricks-and-mortar bookstores and now have started rolling out their own bookstores here that are physical stores. I mean, here in Seattle, the, the first one that they put up it constantly has lines out the door and, and it's just, you know, a bunch of books sitting in, in a mall. Uh, so there, there is still this move um, in some ways to look at some brick-and-mortar options. Um, and obviously they have their whole foods deal as well, which is brick-and-mortar. But they're also trying to figure out how to combine that, that whole foods with their uh, food delivery services that they have in, in various cities, which, again, you know, require a, a Prime subscription, which is bringing us back around to that. Yeah, exactly. Um, Brian, come on in again, though, in terms of the clients that you talk to uh, and what they want, you know, when they think about Amazon and what they're doing to adjust. Well, yeah, one of the things we really help clients uh, look at is their omni-channel experience. So that's how do they connect their physical presence with their digital presence. And that's the one thing, as of yet, Amazon hasn't spread across the country. Uh, They're still predominantly digital, and there are businesses, clothing, retail, and other businesses that will do well if they change their store uh, experience to have more of that digital integration. So being able to look up if they have a product in the store and pick it up, reserve it, see the inventory online, those are examples, um, you know, returning products you bought online in the store and vice versa. Um, those are all integrating the two channels or multiple channels. I think that's the one of the main uh, remaining things that some of these retailers have. You see Nike do this very well. Bonobos is a new company that does it very well. Um, those companies, you know, can still create a place for themselves with or coexist with Amazon, basically. Yeah, and I think about Zara, too, in terms of the retail. They're very good about online uh, physical stores. Yeah. Hey, um, Dina, what do you think Amazon going forward? Like, I feel like, first of all, they gave us some support that we were so kind of discouraged by all of the tech earnings that were coming out and the stocks were going down. But Amazon kind of, I think, restored our faith a little bit uh, in the tech community. What does Amazon become going forward? Is it still a lot of retail? It is a lot of retail, but it's a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're in a lot of a lot of different businesses. Sometimes it feels like we're we're covering six different companies. I mean, you you haven't even touched on sort of the the Alexa and consumer device part of it. But you bring up an interesting point about the restoring our, our faith. Look, I mean, the tech sector had been beaten down in the last couple of weeks. Amazon was, uh, you know, experiencing morning every morning for about a week a tweet from Donald Trump. Right. But Facebook had a lot of concerns. Those shares were massively off after the Cambridge Analytica situation. Um, and, you know, we saw yesterday from numbers from, you know, and this week from Amazon, from Facebook, from right. Microsoft, from Intel, that nothing seems to be slowing down in the businesses. Now, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with, with uh, Facebook in response to the privacy right. scandal, because that happened late in the quarter. But, yeah. you know, there was nothing that they mentioned uh, yesterday that should indicate concern thus far, at least, and, and Amazon as well. Uh, Dina, I mean, we got to run. Dina Bass at Bloomberg News, Brian Manning at Centric Digital, joining us right here on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, our next guest uh, provides a window into the lives of startups, the ups and downs, the things you often don't hear about. His book, Lost and Founder, A Painfully Honest Field Guide to the Startup World, Rand Rishkin wrote it. He, too, knows about startups, having founded uh, Mose and Spark Toro. He joins us on the road from Lisbon, Portugal. Is it Mose or Maz? Forgive me. <laughs> it's Moz. Okay. Maz. No problem. No, no, problem. no. no. We, Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, interesting book. I was looking through it, and it feels like there's a lot of um, honest advice about the world of startups. Tell me who you wrote this book for. 
Yeah, this is really for startup founders and entrepreneurs and people considering the startup world uh, who maybe don't have the exposure and the experience that they might being around lots of other founders as, as one might in Silicon Valley or in New York and are hoping to get a real look at what that world is like. And what is the world really like? Having gone through it firsthand, is it everybody in their dorm room or garage creating a company and becoming a billionaire overnight or not so fast? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's that's every one of us. It's really exciting. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, no, as you, as you might imagine, uh, just like in a lot of other worlds, I think the mythology around uh, startups is far from the truth. There are some stereotypes that certainly hold true, but most startup founders are in their 40s and 50s, not in their 20s or teens. Uh, most startup founders, in fact, the overwhelming majority, are going to fail at it uh, because most startups collapse and don't return money to their investors and uh, end up being a less than stellar gamble for founders and early employees who don't make nearly as much as they would if they worked in you know, the technology sector at larger companies. And so uh, in a lot of ways, this is a, you know, it's a labor of passion. It's certainly, I think, for a lot of folks who enter the field, it's something where they hope that they're going to become rich and powerful and important and lauded, and that is extremely unlikely. Um, so, yeah, ho- hopefully Lost and Founder can help help give folks a little bit of a better look at what the lives of most startups look like rather than just the Facebooks and Googles. Well, it's interesting, too, um, because I feel like sometimes it's almost like the startup world is similar to the medical world or pharmaceutical world, right, where there can be a lot of money chasing, a lot of really interesting, smart ideas, and yet only a few become blockbusters. And is that true? Do you feel like that that's, uh, you know, the case as well in the startup world? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's similar to a lot of hit-based businesses, although, you know, whereas in the in a hit-based world of maybe film or television, you know, even being a B-list or C-list actor is still very notable. Uh, in the startup world, not so much. How much of what happens in a startup world is timing and chance in terms of mm-hmm. doing something at the right time where there's investors interested in kind of committing money to that specific thing and there's a need in the marketplace? Yeah, I think I think timing has proven uh, over and over again to be uh, not just one factor, but often a dominant factor in whether a company becomes um, immensely successful or whether it falls on its face. And, and you can see that with You know, the rise of social networks in the 1990s and the early 2000s compared to the mid and late 2000s when broadband and mobile were being adopted and the prominent social networks gained a tremendous amount of traction. Um, I think there's also a lot of credit given to many of us startup founders for being, you know, uh, brilliant and immense risk takers and uh, having this, this sort of genius to us. Uh, and, and I don't think that's really the case either. I think a lot of this, a lot more of this is luck and timing as well as a huge, you know, a huge number of people who contribute to these things, right? So customers and employees, but also also people's families, right? Um, yeah. I mean, people like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates came from immense amounts of money. And these are guys who dropped out of you know, Harvard, right? Not uh, uh, even Larry Page and Sergey Brin, right? Stanford, we're not talking about... 
a state school or a community college here. So it's a it's sort of tough trying to um, shoehorn startup founders into right. uh, the roles that we're most familiar with. Hey, hey, Rand, just got about um, 45 seconds left here. So I'm thinking about there are, though, a lot of folks out there who want to, you know, go their own way and start up a business. Um, give me, you know, maybe one one piece of core advice to kind of keep in mind as somebody does that just quickly. Sure. I would say that, you know, the classic path of venture capital, which is which is one of the most well-known paths, is not the only option. And I would I would encourage startup founders to look at staying independent, to look at bootstrapping, to look at alternative funds of form, forms of funding. There's a lot more options out there than just VC. Yeah, some really fun chapters, including kind of the difficulty of being a CEO of a company. Uh, so some really helpful advice. Rand, thank you so much. I know you're busy. I know you're on the road there in Lisbon, Portugal. So nice to catch up with you. Rand Fishkin, founder of Moz and Spark Toro. His book is Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world, and he knows having started a couple of companies. <laughs> yeah, it kind of feels that way. Because if you take a look at shares of Chevron, Chevron and ExxonMobil, kind of mixed up because Chevron shares are rallying. ExxonMobil, not so much. Both of them out with earnings today. Let's get a look at the results. Take a look at the environment for big oil. Fernando Valle is uh, oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Nice to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell me what happened. I mean, no company, even if you're in the same industry, are exactly the same. So let's 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 talk about Chevron first. And we do see their shares are up in today's session. Talk about their quarter. Yeah, so so Chevron's really benefiting from a secular change in their uh, own circumstances. They made a lot of large investments in the 2010 to 2014 period that's now coming to mature. So the biggest one was Gorgon LNG in Australia, but they also have Wheatstone LNG also in Western Australia. Um, the first three trains of Gorgon came online during 2017. The first train of Wheatstone came online at the end of 2017. And so now this they're This is all really, LNG? That's all LNG. Okay. So they're really starting to benefit from that. Um, so in other words, they now. made the investments a few years ago, and so now that's all starting to pay off. So this is where exactly. they are in their cycle. It's what they used to like to call the wall of free cash flow that's finally coming to pay off. And, you know, the question then becomes, when... When does that free cash flow revert to shareholders or does that free cash flow go somewhere else? And they haven't really talked about buybacks yet. They said they want to see some consistency on that free cash flow. But their net debt is fairly low. They're 18 percent of their equity capital uh, on that debt. And I think what they're really looking for is to eliminate all the turnkey risks with the second train of Wheatstone which comes online this quarter. And then once that's there, and they've started to generate free cash flow from that project as well, they'll be in a place where they can look to to start increasing the distributions. But investors obviously can see this. There's visibility. There's some transparency in terms of their moves and, and how it's working out. There's certainly visibility on the free cash flow. The question with any of these companies, not just Chevron, is, is management going to give that back to me or are they going to reinvest? Right. Well, what should they do? I mean, right, I always feel like it's a fine dance, especially with these companies, right? Because oil companies in particular, you don't just say, I'm going to do this and I do it tomorrow, right? They've got to invest. They've got to spend big time. It takes a 
while for these pro- projects uh, to pan out and pay off. Yeah. Um, so they have to make those investments to keep investors happy down the road. Having said that, those investments impact what they can pay out to investors today. It's a 10-year cycle. And my, as my old boss used to say, uh, it's, you know, the CEO inherits the decision of his predecessor. <laughs> right. And so you're the making... The good, the bad, in- and the ugly of it. Exactly. You're making the investments for the next guy, basically. And I think with Chevron, they have they, they really got lucky that they kept their Permian position. They're the second largest acreage holder in the Permian, so they have a lot to work from. I still think they probably need to add some other low-cost resource, but they have a good legacy position. I think they will do buybacks, but then they will also look to make some timely acquisitions of low-cost resources. Fernando, since this is your world, why is LNG so interesting right now? Well, it, there are a couple of issues. The first is in a post-COP21 world Paris Agreement, you want to lower your carbon footprint. Uh, you also want to lower smog, and particularly in Asia where there, there is a huge concern with air quality. You want to switch from higher pollution, higher smog, coal, into natural gas. Uh, and liquefied natural gas is the technology that allows you to bring natural gas from a different part of the world that doesn't have a need for it, like us. We mm-hmm. have too much of it into areas that need it for power like China. Uh, The second part of it is that, uh, particularly for uh, big oil companies, it's a project that gives you scale, gives you size, and it has uh, relatively high barriers to entry. Um, So not every major is in LNG? Most of the majors are in LNG, but very few independents are in it. So let's talk about ExxonMobil. Yeah, so Why are investors so disappointed? I think uh, you know they, they are on the other side of, of Exxon. They didn't inherit that permit, uh, Permian position. They've uh, disposed of it over the, the course of the you years. Yeah, the other side of Chevron? Yes. Okay. Uh, sorry. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I want to uh, keep it straight in my head. <laughs> it's Friday. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, absolutely. But uh, they, they, they really needed to make a change in their portfolio. It was really based around Canadian oil sands, Russian exploration, and U.S. natural gas. None of those work anymore. And so when you they outlined five, Was that the work of Rex Tillerson? That mostly was uh, under Rex. Okay. A little bit under Lee Raymond, but mostly Rex. And when, when you see the five pillars of growth that they've outlined, all of those were added in 2014 and thereafter. Hmm. So that really shows you that they have a need to recycle their, their capital. And that's why they're going to hold off on re, uh, restarting that buyback uh, for a few more months, if not years, as they look to reshuffle that portfolio. Because they need to. They need to. Where, and they need to shuffle it into where? Well, low-cost resources. In the world of shale, uh, the majors are particularly underrepresented in shale. So they've, they've gone out and acquired, made a $6 billion acquisition in the Permian. The other area that they seem to like a lot is Brazilian pre-salt. They mm. made huge strides into that. Uh, Brazil is also in a position where they need to sell assets. Petrobras needs to lower their leverage. So it's an area that is very competitive in terms of uh, returns and is also very competitive in terms of entry points. So Exxon needs to redeploy capital, as you said, which may be a little disappointing to investors, at least in the short term or medium term. But eventually, you're saying make those investments and they'll pay off. Just get about 20 seconds. Exactly. This is a returns on capital business. Yeah. And you need to. I think they're they're acquiring the right assets and they're redeploying at the right time. You you have to do it now, or it's just going to be a worse problem down the road. All right, interesting stuff. Um, great explanation. Thank you. Absolutely, Good. happy to have you here. Yeah, great to have you here, Fernando Valle, uh, oil and gas analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts in our Bloomberg eleven three zero studio. Exxon shares lower, Chevron are up. I just 
Yeah, I just got off a plane, actually, but it was not a private jet. I obviously need to work on that one. Um, Our next company, they're Fleet Bombardier Global and Challenger Jets. I was checking them out earlier today, flying around the world. Let's take a look once again at the private aviation market. Thomas Floor is back with us, chairman and founder at VistaJet in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Where are you based? Well, I'm based in the sky, so... Uh, You're based it, in the sky. <laughs> I, I fly about 800 hours per year, and, and and since we do have a global customer base, a global infrastructure, I travel between New York, London, um, Dubai, Hong Kong, West Coast America, Los Angeles... Um, and uh, actually, I have a home in, in Los Angeles. I love Los Angeles. But so, you're not going commercial jets, right? Uh, no, no. We we just solely focus on business jets, and uh, it's 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 a very very interesting and compelling industry. When when I entered it, I felt it was under industrialized, and there is there's so many ways you can drive more value to your client base, and and that's what we really built over the last uh, 14 years. Well, tell me what you're seeing, like in the last year, what kind of interesting mm-hmm. trends are happening? Because you and I were chatting before we got going, and I feel like the sharing economy is impacting everything, including the private jet industry. Well, yeah, this is this is spot on. And and what what used to be a one off decision of a certain board or a certain uh, large corporation or an individual who said, well, do I really need to own an aircraft or should I just buy the hours I need? Is now a truly global theme. I think the shared economy concept, you know, has reached every corner of the world, whether it's being right here in New York or you go to Johannesburg or Hong Kong or Mumbai. Um, people think three times before they even present a $50 million asset purchase to a board and, and trying to buy a private jet. Now, one thing we, we should always think about is that having access to a private jet really, really increases the efficiency of the sea levels, of the of the leaders of a company. Because Meaning those they can are time go whenever, machines. Whenever exactly. they need. Well, so, so those so are time that, machines. Well, explain this to me. So if somebody has mm-hmm. uh, an ownership in one of your jets, mm-hmm. um, how does it work? Do they say, hey, listen, all of a sudden i got to go in an hour. Can they go in an hour? So the answer to the second one is absolutely. We have a guaranteed availability on our fleet. We never subcontract. It's always on a silver plane with a red stripe. But but the, the entrance to your to your uh, last statement was they have an interest. They have a share in our fleet. They don't. We do not sell shares in our fleet. We own it 100% because fractional ownership is even worse than full ownership because you're not in control of the asset. And you are suffering very steep depreciation. So we said, let's us run this 24-7. With us, you have access to a fleet of 72 airplanes, all identical. And you don't have access to one plane or two planes, to 72, anywhere, anytime around the globe. And, And that's really what drives our growth. So yeah, it's like we a, offer this infrastructure. So it's essentially what a subscription, a membership. It's a subscription. It, it, we, we don't charge a membership. You just buy the hours you need. So we would sit down with a corporation or with a ultra high net worth individual and just find out approximately how many hours they would need to fly on what type of aircraft. So we have a transcontinental plane, which is a Challenger 350, right. or then the intercontinental plane, the Global Express, Global 6000, flying up to 13 hours nonstop. Thomas, how do you decide to buy more planes? Is it just a bit case of uh, signing up more? Subscription, some more mem- you know. Well, here, here's what we did. Look, are we, are we, you we, buying more planes? We, at, at this point in time, we, we just concluded a massive, massive investment cycle of about $2.5 billion. We concluded it last year. And this we had to have this size of infrastructure to offer true global availability, whether it's guaranteed availability here in the United States or in Tokyo or in, 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 in Delhi or in Abu Dhabi. You just call us, and with shortest notice, you fly anywhere, anytime around the globe. This infrastructure will support probably another, you know, up to another nearly double 
of the same traffic. But that global infrastructure was needed to offer right. guaranteed availability. So, right. so we expect that by some if time... If you build it, a, they will come. You had yeah, to build it first. Yeah, you have to build it first. It's like a, it's like a network business, right? How, right? how many customers... I mean, how much can you tell us about how many customers you've got? So let's go through some stats. Last year, we did about 23,000 international flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we transported 55,000 passengers uh, around the globe. And, and so when I'm on about 53,000 hours. So the run rate this year... Uh, we're heading towards 65 to 68,000 hours. So okay. uh, we experienced first quarter was the best quarter ever of the company. It's 30% growth uh, of the top line. So that same infrastructure would support about 90,000, 95,000 hours. So that's where the growth, which is built in, and we just go out. We look for more subscription uh, clients. And, and obviously, you know, the competition is owning an airplane or a fraction of it. And, and it's very, very compelling. And that's really where we take market share from the ownership model. Um, is there any part of the world geographically where you find you're getting more and more people who are signing up mm-hmm. to be a part of this? Well, the, the, the area of biggest growth is right here in the United States the now. United States. In all fairness, we only arrived in 2014 here in the U.S., yeah. so we started out of a smaller base. But having said that, um, we more than doubled the number of subscription clients in 2017. We see this growth uh, or this trend to continue in 2018. And, and you know, the, the, the U.S. clients wants a consistent, fantastic product with great service at an attractive price and value point. And I think that's what we offer. And, and uh, unless you're into ownership, you know, you could only end up at very inconsistent, random charter. And we yeah. offer that guaranteed fleet. 30 seconds left here. I'm always curious about stuff like this because transportation is such a great indication of kind of the economic and market environment. Based on the activity you're seeing, what does it tell you about kind of the global economy right now? Just got about 25 we're, seconds. We're, we're, we're very good question. We're booming in every single market around the globe. Um, I told you the growth rates uh, in the last six months, we see a very strong economy. A very strong economy. Cool stuff. And I'm still doing commercial. What am I doing wrong? Come on the flight tonight to <laughs> Milan. <laughs> oh, that sounds really, really good. Um, nice to have you back with us. Thank you so much. Thomas Floor, he's chairman and founder of VistaJet. Joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You can check out more on Twitter at VistaJet. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, it is time for the drive to the close, and it's nice to have Doug Sioka back with us on this Friday, Chief Executive Officer and Partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $610 million in assets under management, on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. How the heck are you? Because this has been a busy week. It's been a busy week. It's been a frenetic week. It's, it's been a great week, and it's uh, ending on, a, on hopefully a positive note in the market and a beautiful day in Kansas City. Well, that's nice. It's a little uh, rainy and overcast here. I'm looking at the Dow, down about six-tenths of a percent, but nice to see some of the big tech names kind of bouncing back after everybody was so ready to write them up. What do you make about the kind of love them, hate them, love them with the big tech names, Doug? Yeah, great question. I think what's taken place is, right, the market is kind of demonstrating its cold-hearted 
discounting ways. I think a lot of the great news from tech has likely been embedded in um, a lot of their appreciation, certainly through the course of 2017. And they were the, the, the best performing index going into this earnings reporting period in 18 as well. And I think obviously what took place with Facebook just shook people's confidence, not only in the continued sort of trailblazing innovative ways of tech, but also in the sustainability of what have become very commonly adopted business models. So between Facebook getting its sea legs and stabilizing to even the old guard like Intel and Microsoft and the reporting that they demonstrated last night, I think it was just encouraging across the whole complex for sure. Interesting. What do you make, too, of, I don't know, economic news and the 10-year, you know, popping through 3% where we're back below that? Any of this stuff you think is, is important to investors longer term? Oh, I think it's all important. You know, the big question we get from our clients every day is, you know, how do you put money to work in an environment like this? Because we've we've described this as, do you remember the old Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire? I actually just saw him in concert at the Garden, so I saw him do it live just a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just a fantastic song. And, and, right, the whole essence was he's stringing together events that – Right as they occur, they all had these markings that they were very unique and, and, and almost to be considered unprecedented. But as we know, I mean, so much of what happens in markets and what investors undergo, directly or indirectly, will always ring familiar with some prior period. So we're looking at this year, and, 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 and everyone is reacquainting with risk. Right, we're understanding mm-hmm. the benefit of having balance in a portfolio is critical, and we have to be more in, in custom, and we, we are becoming more accustomed to riding these volatility waves, none of which were crashing on shore through all of 2017. Right. And this year, to your point, I mean, the first volatility wave was a credit exported wave, right? We had news that was actually too good in February, <laughs> and there was this fear that the Fed was just going to come ripping out of the gate and raise rates fast and furiously, and, right. and that's not happened. The second wave was more that of, a, of a, an erosion of confidence, which is a lot of geopolitical noise, right? Disharmony between fiscal and monetary policy, a lot of geopolitical tinderboxes, and we weren't sure what was going to ignite those. And then this last one, which feeds in your question about tech, is earnings-related outlooks have not been as strong as the run-up in the prices and the valuations would have um, seemingly expected. So now we're recalibrating, in, in, in I think in this environment, an actively managed balanced portfolio is critical. We're finally in a position, like you said, the mm-hmm. Fed has raised rates, yeah. conditions have tightened a little bit, so you have to be very selective across sectors and even within sectors is where you're allocating capital. Yeah, I kind of feel like all this crazy volatility, or which is actually really kind of just a move back to more normal volatility, reminded us that, yep, stocks can go up and they can go down. And it's and so now we're kind of like, oh, yeah, okay, I remember what happened earlier this year. So let me look at things. Let me really understand the economic backdrop. The markets that, you know, a certain company works within, what are the fundamentals? Let me look at the valuation and really understand their business, and let's let's have things trade at maybe what they should be trading at. I, I think that's absolutely – all that is phenomenal insight, right? I mean, sentiment – Wait, wait. Did you say phenomenal? Wow. Phenomenal insight, yeah. You, you can come back any time, Doug. Carrying over. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I love coming on. Um, but you're right. I mean, now sentiment – has turned, yeah. right, which is because people are reacquainted with volatility and it's not a one-direction trade. Money flows have turned. Right? Think how much money came into the market 
mostly in passive fashions ever since the election of, of November of 2016. And that's right. that, that is, that's not only it's been tightened, it has gone the other direction. Right. So there are certain areas of the market that have been really beaten down because they have been the victim of the large part of that fund flow, which is offering great mean reverting tendencies and valuation attractiveness if you can be sort of um, really calibrating and identifying those expected returns. So, hey, Doug, so when you're talking with clients and they're saying, okay, so what do you see as the environment for the next couple of years? I don't. I mean, do you feel like you have that kind of visibility? Because I certainly don't feel like the market's coming undone here. And I, I use the market loosely, like broadly, as I always do. Mm-hmm. But none, so having said that, I do realize this has been a long cycle, you know, and at some point we have to see, we have seen some correction, but we also need to see the economy maybe, you know, dip down at some point. Just got about 30, 30 seconds here, 40 seconds. Yeah, I, I think you have to, again, like consider sort of the balance of all the inputs. And one of the cool things, I think, just given what's transpired over the course of the last four to six months we're finally in a position where there's legitimate competition between stocks and, do- and bonds for that incremental investment dollar, right? Real yields right. are positive for intermediate-term loans. And if you're looking at stocks, you just have to make sure they're in companies that have underlying growth rates that are in excess of the cost of capital because that cost of capital may rise. So trying to build that protective moat, so to speak, across the spectrum of the assets in your portfolio. Nice to check in with you. Have a great weekend. Doug Sioka, he's chief executive officer, partner at Kavar Capital Partners, roughly $610 million in assets under management. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.